There are more than three times the number of deaths due to medical misdiagnosis each year than from the road toll. That's a pretty startling figure. We'll talk to the, the person who cites that figure soon. And women and other marginalised groups are more at risk than the average. We'll find out why in a moment after we get some definitions of medical misdiagnosis and its cousin, medical gaslighting. We've got a bit of time for this today on Life Matters because it affects so many people in Australia and because it's disproportionate for vulnerable people. So we'll also be asking how we might prevent medical misdiagnosis, whether that's about training doctors differently, changing the culture around doctor-patient interactions or systems issues perhaps, and we'll find out what to do if it happens to you. Maureen Williams, unfortunately, has had a great deal of experience with this. She lives with Addison's disease and she's a long-time patient advocate and a consultant researcher in diagnostic error and cognitive bias. Maureen, great to have you on the program. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, tell us how you first became acquainted with this issue yourself 45 years ago in London. Right. Well, 45 years ago was a very exciting time for me because I was studying singing at the Con and I was offered a scholarship to further my studies in London. So I went to London with my husband and my two-year-old son and for the first several months I was living the dream, uh, meeting famous singers and getting along really well. When I started to feel ill, uh, I lost a lot of weight, I looked jaundiced, uh, my top notes of my singing voice disappeared completely and I was really unwell. So we came home and over the next 18 months or so, my health deteriorated really quite rapidly and I must have seen at least half a dozen doctors. What did Some they say to you, Maureen? Well, some of them took tests and some of them just looked at me and decided that there was nothing really wrong with me because when your skin darkens and you don't look particularly sick, um, you're not really taken seriously. So I was offered Valium and antidepressants, which I thought was pretty patronising, and I didn't take them. Um, after about 18 months, I was really quite desperately sick and I started to really quite feel quite suicidal. So in desperation, I went to RPA hospital and asked if there was such a thing as a diagnostician whom I then subsequently saw and who very quickly diagnosed me with Addison's disease and told me that I was actually quite near death. Well, yes, what are the implications of Addison's disease if you if you can't get diagnosed? Right, Addison's is a rare and potentially life-threatening autoimmune condition which kills the adrenal glands and, of course, they uh, uh, manage your flight-and-fight response. So for an Addison's patient, we take steroids twice a day to uh, make up for that loss and if you have an accident, if you're really ill or if you have a shock, uh, it's vital that you get intravenous steroids very quickly or you can, in fact, die. Right, so a diagnosis was crucial to your continued health and survival. Looking back now, Maureen, what do you think was going on? I mean, Addison's is a fairly rare disease. Is it understandable to an extent that it might be hard to diagnose? Sure. Look, let me say at the outset that I have the greatest respect for the medical profession and they do get it right most of the time. Uh, I acknowledge Addison's disease is really hard to diagnose. The symptoms are amorphous and they could in fact be related to lots of other conditions. But the point is, Hilary, that my diagnosis was 45 years ago and one would expect that it now has improved dramatically and the reality is it hasn't. I still get regularly 
coroner's reports and um, verbal stories from young patients who've died undiagnosed. So I think what it shows is that the medical profession is still looking at things from a clinical perspective and not from the patient perspective. And Maureen, I understand that, I mean, you continue to need to seek medical help from time to time, sometimes in emergency. Have you seen those attitudes continue towards you unchanged over the last 45 years? Look, I've had really good experiences and I've had some laughable ones. Um, I have because Addison's patients tend not to look sick. I mean, a great classic case is is President John Kennedy. He had Addison's disease and he looked really healthy. Uh, I've had over 100 uh, hospitalisations in emergency. I've been mistreated, I've been misdiagnosed, I've been patronised, and once it was suggested to me that I'd come to hospital because I had marriage problems. Now, I mean, that's absolutely laughable to think that your marriage is falling apart and I'll just go to an emergency department and lie down with the sick people. (laughs) I don't think that's going to happen. And no medical professional would suggest that to a man. That's interesting, isn't it? I was interested to read some of the things that had been said to you over the years, Maureen, and some of them seem to be related to the fact that you were a woman seeking help for this debilitating condition. I understand people said things to you based on, you know, the the kinds of things you were trying to fit into your life. Yes, well, I did run a support group for some time and we found that the men were diagnosed very quickly. Uh, They'd go to the doctor and say, geez, doc, I feel crook, and the doctor would immediately start doing tests and they were diagnosed, whereas most of the women with Addison's disease were initially misdiagnosed and took a lot longer. Um, I mean, we had one... A very tragic story that the husband brought to us of his wife, who was a young woman with a newborn and a toddler. And she was an athlete. She was a marathon runner. And like me, she got all these symptoms and she went from doctor to doctor. They all told her she was doing too much. She needed to get help. They offered her Valium. And eventually she said to her husband, I'm going to have a shower and I'm going to the hospital and I'm staying there till someone tells me what's wrong with me. And 20 minutes later, her husband found her dead in the shower. That is tragic, as you say. We're speaking with Maureen Williams, who has Addison's disease and it took a long time, a long and difficult time to get diagnosed. Maureen, you now run support groups. How many stories like this do you see? How many people come wanting to be part of the support groups about medical misdiagnosis? Well, I'm not involved with the support groups anymore, uh, but I, I have kept in touch with them and we get lots of people, um, mostly women, who are misdiagnosed. And, you know, as I said before, it points to the fact that medicine is still looking at things from a clinical perspective and not looking at the patient as a person with a story. They need to be heard, they need to be acknowledged. And, of course, in today's world, GPs are given definitive times that they have to see patients and make a diagnosis. In emergency, they have four hours where they have to uh, see the patient, do the tests, look at the symptoms, diagnose them and move them on. Um, It's no wonder that there's misdiagnoses. We don't have the time to actually look at the person. And Maureen, just quickly, you're a patient advocate as well. How much of a difference can that make if there's a patient advocacy role available to help people who are trying to get a diagnosis? 
Well, I think patient advocacy is really uh, beginning to take on. Uh, the patient advocate motto now is not about us without us. And um, I've been involved in, in a lot of uh, lectures and talks with emergency physicians suggesting that, that they take the time to actually listen to the patient's story. I think on Life Matters earlier in the week, there was someone who, who talked about the research that the Clinical Excellence Commission did, which found that when a doctor asks a patient a question, they interrupt them within 11 seconds. And they also said that if you give a patient a full minute to encapsulate their story, that they will give valuable information. So as a patient advocate, to be able to uh, spread the word about that and to suggest that there might be biases present and that doctors need to look at the way they interact with patients. And also the fact that, you know, historically, when I was growing up in the country, doctors were gods and whatever they said was was the truth. Um, I think now that we need to realise that the doctor-patient relationship is equal. Mm, yep. The doctor has the, the skill and the patient has the information about themselves. Maureen, it's been wonderful to be able to bring your story to our listeners and make it part of this conversation. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Maureen Williams is a patient advocate who lives with Addison's disease. Dr. Mary Darm joins us now. She's a senior research fellow at the ANU Institute for Communication in Healthcare, and her recent research has focused on misdiagnosis and how language and bias affect quality of care. Mary, great to have you with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Hilary. It's a pleasure. First up, what do we know about how common misdiagnosis is in Australia? Well, Really, diagnostic error has the potential to touch every one of us at least once during our lifetimes. And it might be something simple like misdiagnosing a cold for a viral illness rather than a bacterial one. But it can also have really harmful and even fatal consequences as the tragic stories we've just heard from Maureen. But really, it is, like you said before, about three times more people die in a row. So it's about an estimated two to 4,000 people that die and up to 120,000 people that are harmed every year in Australia. I read one stat that you cited saying it was in 10 to 15 percent of uh, of cases yeah. of yeah, so, yeah, um, medical interactions. Doctors, doctors do get it right about 80 to 90 percent of the time. So we got to um, be proud of the good work that they're doing. But it's consistently been 10 to 15 percent ever since people started looking at, at what the rate of misdiagnosis is internationally. So globally, basically probably even worse in, in less developed countries. It was fascinating to read too that there are quite a few different types of misdiagnosis. So delayed diagnosis, it takes a while. A missed diagnosis, the doctor didn't see what it was. A misdiagnosis, they tell you you have one thing, but actually you have another thing. And a miscommunication diagnosis. Yeah. So uh, how, yes. I guess, is the bulk of diag misdiagnoses one or the other of those? Um, I think it often is a mix. So there's there's an official definition of what a diagnostic error is. And the first part is really sort of the clinical part that you don't get the right thing at the right time. And and it really sort of incorporates the, the issue and aspect of time that's crucial in diagnosis as well. Some things are just, some things take time to diagnose. So if you come somewhere with a fracture and an x-ray, it's a really sort of timely thing and it's really quickly done. So it can oh. take a while. That's all right. I, I want to make sure we get to the miscommunicated diagnosis issue. Tell us a bit more about that. Oh, sure. Um, so the, the second part of the um, diagnostic error definition is that you communicate the explanation for the patient's problem to the patient. 
So that means that you need to be sure and make sure that the patient has understood. And oftentimes that might not happen, especially if, if clinicians use jargon or, or don't explain the jargon well enough. And I mean, uh, I found it quite a bit confusing to think about uh, if, if is that a misdiagnosis, if the doctor has told the patient what they've got, but the patient hasn't quite been able to understand it, does that count as a misdiagnosis? Well, it sort of counts as a diagnostic error. It's not a misdiagnosis in the classical sense, but uh-huh. if, if you're as the patient does, doesn't know what your diagnosis is, or let's say you have been diagnosed with cancer, maybe not cancer, but you've had cancer and it has progressed. And that's the words that the doctors use and or they say it had spread. And you don't really understand what the implications of that are and go on and live your life um, and then present somewhere else. And they say, oh, your notes say that you're now terminal. And all of a sudden you're like, what? No one told me that. That's that's where the crux of, of the error comes in. Okay. And we heard from Maureen before about some of her experiences. I was fascinated to read in one of her speeches that, that she feels that most doctors are wired to try and find an answer. Can that cause problems? Do doctors need to get better at saying when they don't know? Um, I think a lot of the the medical profession itself is quite aware of how uncertain they might be or how long it might take them. It it is a bit of a balance between what what Maureen also said, that there used to be this idea of the God and white and they know everything. And there's a need to move away from that a little bit. There's patients maybe go to the doctor and expect that they get a diagnosis straight away and then they're really... um, dissatisfied if they leave and they haven't been given a label. But So it's it's more of a broader cultural change that needs to be made that not everything can be solved straight away and that there is uncertainty. And yes, the doctors need to tell the patients if they're uncertain, but they also should tell them the different things that are considering so the patient gets empowered and can follow up on, on various avenues if they wanted to. And there are ways to, if you're a patient, Mary, there are ways to make that more likely, that clear communication, aren't there? Do you want to quickly tell us some tips that sure. you have for people? Well, prepare. Have, have a list of questions ready or have a list of concerns ready as well. So you can tell your doctor, hey, I'm coming with these things. This, is the mo- this one is the one that's most pressing for me. We're speaking with Mary Darm, Dr. Mary Darm, who's been doing a lot of research in this area of communication in healthcare. Uh, she's a senior research fellow at the ANU Institute for Communication in Healthcare. And we're getting a lot of text as we just try and reconnect with Mary. I'll read you a couple of these incredible stories. Alex in Canberra says, 18 months ago, I presented to emergency with severe abdominal pain. When I finally got into a bed, the male doctor told me that I was pregnant and that the pain was implantation pain and he tried to send me home. My partner insisted on an ultrasound and it turned out, yes, I was pregnant, but it was ectopic and my fallopian tube had ruptured and I was bleeding internally. I was admitted for immediate emergency surgery where they pumped two litres of blood out of my abdomen and removed my fallopian tube. If I'd gone home, I could have ended up with sepsis or worse. Thank you for that, Alex. Another, I was dismissed for 18 months. By the time it was diagnosed properly, it was stage three cancer. I'm now recently Researching this post my PhD in PTSD. And another said, I had a dangerously high bowel infection and public hospital doctors said I had hemorrhoids, didn't bother to do any tests. As we've been hearing from uh, Dr. Mary Dunn, you know, in 80, 90% of cases, doctors get it right. But I guess the implications, if they don't, in that 10 to 15% of cases can be quite severe. Mary, you argue too that communication issues between medical professionals can be a problem. Tell us about safety netting and how important that is. 
Um, so safety netting is a term that doctors usually use when they give information to patients before they send them home in the hospital or, or a GP sort of says to you, if this happens, then come back or seek further help. Or if that happens, go to the emergency department. What also happens is that um, clinicians need to or doctors need to talk to each other, especially like in, in shared care teams. So in hospitals, when there's handover or things like that, especially around investigation and test results. So to make sure that if someone or orders a test that's critical, like a cortisol level for Edison's disease that might take a while to come back, that that is communicated, that the doctor says, oh, I've been thinking about Edison's disease. I've ordered a cortisol test. Someone needs to follow this test up. And that's something where often tests get missed or tests don't get followed up because there is no idea of who's really responsible for it, the one that ordered, the doctor that ordered it, or the doctor that's now looking after the patient. So the communication between the doctors is really important in that respect as well. Yes, and you can see how that relates to what you were saying before about taking notes, perhaps having a support person to help you keep those records, yeah. keeping an audit trail. I think you've written about that being a really useful thing to have a copy of all your records in the one place about that yeah. particular condition and asking lots and of also, questions. Yeah, asking lots of questions. Be nosy. Don't be afraid to be the nosy patient. Say, oh, have you ordered tests? What are the, t like, literally ask, what are the tests that you've ordered? And it was, sometimes they will say, oh, it's just regular blood tests. But when they are ordering specific tests for specific diseases that they're investigating, you should, as a patient, should know about that so that you can also follow up. There's this saying that always comes about test results is no news is good news, but no news is no news. Or if you had a test result and you haven't heard about it, follow it up. And it's easier nowadays, sometimes with the My Health Record, you can look them up yourself or depending on where you live, you might be able to um, check what your pathology results are five days after they've been released, but you need to follow them up. No news is no news. Mm. Mary, let's talk a little bit about bias because the I was fascinated to read about the term medical gaslighting, which happens more to women and other marginalised groups. Yeah. Tell us how that relates to medical misdiagnosis in the broader sense. Well, it, it really is. Um, bias is how you are judged from the way that you, um, from the minute that you step into sort of a clinical encounter or um, a visit at your GP. People look at you. What are you dressed like? What do you look like? What's your color? What What are you wearing? Are you overweight? Are you underweight? Um, and like um, Maureen said before, she lost a lot of weight. She was a young woman. She looked tan. And there have been places where if you think about what the stereotypes are about what a young woman should look like, someone that comes in and is skinny and tan doesn't look unhealthy. So people might not take them as seriously. Or if someone comes in and says they're a bit overweight and I said, oh, my ankle hurts. I fell and my ankle hurts. And, and they won't be listened to necessarily. They won't be sort of dismissed as, oh, it's just your weight. We don't really need to do an exam. We don't really need to do um, an x-ray. You just have to lose weight. And this is what medical gaslighting is. If you come in, you have legitimate concerns, they're either dismissed, you're not listened to, you don't get the proper examinations that you feel other people would get if they come in. And that all then relates to how diagnosis can be missed. So if you don't get an x-ray and have a fractured foot, that's get missed. Um, or that people feel um, invalidated in actually seeking help and then they may not seek help as quickly enough the next time. So that can also lead to delays in, in diagnosing something. Well, and I mean, it makes me quite angry, the idea that you might be judged and uh, 
yeah, assumptions made about you when you go to the doctor because that's yeah. that's bias in the present. But it, just to be fair to doctors, it sounds like they're relying on uh, research and clinical testing that showed bias in the past too, aren't they? Because some of the conditions uh, that they might be asked to diagnose present differently in women and men. Yes. And that that's a sort of really systemic issue where for years and years and years, or maybe even decades, hundreds of years, research has been done on men. So it really was the white middle-aged man who was the research subject, not women, because we have hormones and they fluctuate and that makes us tricky to study. Um, but it really affects the way that people can be treated by the way that they present. So if you're a middle-aged man and you um, come to emergency room and you say you have chest pain, you probably immediately get a category three, so you're an urgent case and you need to be seen at least a category three urgent case need to be seen right away. Women often present with different symptoms. So they might come in and they say, oh, I have back pain and I have nausea. And they're really sort of vague, undifferentiated symptoms. And they could can just as well be symptoms for a heart attack. And they haven't been started. I mean, in cardiovascular disease, that has been studied now and there's changes being made. But that, that goes across the entire sector. So a woman coming with nausea and back pain to emergency department wouldn't get a category three. She would get a lower category four or five. She would wait longer. She would be seen later. And that, again, can be causing delay in, in diagnosing and treatment what she has. Yeah, we're speaking with Dr. Mary Darm, who is a senior research fellow at the ANU Institute for Communication in Healthcare. And as we've been hearing, so many of these misdiagnosis issues are about communication between doctor and patient, all those systems issues within uh, a healthcare setting. Let's look at how things could be done differently. You're listening to Life Matters. My name is Hilary Harper, and Dr. Fatima Khan joins us. She sees many patients who've been misdiagnosed before they come to her. She trained as a GP, but she now works as a menopause specialist and she also teaches medical students at the Epworth Hospital in Melbourne. Dr Khan, great to have you part of the program. Good morning, Henry. Thank you for having me. So we've been hearing about how uh, a lot of uh, times women and people of colour and LGBTQ people can have their uh, symptoms dismissed by some practitioners if they're trying to seek diagnosis, particularly for a, a complex condition. What implications does this have for these women? Because you see quite a few of these people, don't you? Yes, so typically I will see women between the ages of 40 and 60 um, who would present to me with essentially perimenopausal or menopausal symptoms. But by the time they've got to me, it's taking them two to three years. They've gone to several specialists and yet have failed to get adequate treatment. So typically if you see a 45-year-old woman who's perimenopausal, essentially that's when the periods are becoming irregular but they have a host of symptoms, and I always call them their multi-organ symptoms. So they might have severe joint pains. They've gone to a rheumatologist who've told them, no, you don't have arthritis. They've gone to a neurologist for their severe migraines or tingling in parts of their body, and they've been told there's nothing wrong with you. And then they've gone to a cardiologist who, with palpitations and just kind of chest tightness, have been told there's nothing wrong with you. It's all anxiety. And typically we see a lot of mood disturbance and they've been giving antidepressants which don't help them because they've been told they're depressed when they're not. So you've got these women who are being medical, unintentionally medically gaslighted, I would say, because there's some knowledge gaps. And, you know, if you're looking at general health practitioners, endocrine and autoimmune disorders tend to be very vague in their presentations. They're not your typical, I broke my wrist, I have wrist pain. 
they have 10 or more symptoms which are very vague, very non-specific. And your average primary practitioner are not necessarily trained to recognize them or to put the pieces of the puzzles together because the average blood test may not detect, the um, make the diagnosis because you need specialist investigations which are normally ordered by specialists like endocrinologists or neurologists. So I think we need to be um, step back and understand why are we getting these misdiagnoses or delayed diagnoses? And number one, are there some knowledge gaps in healthcare professionals that we need to do better? There's definitely unconscious bias and there's gender bias. We know that. But when it comes to perimenopause, I think we need to realize that the women, when they come to see me, they, I, we need to listen. So we listen and you have to believe them. I think they've gone through two, three years of doctor shopping as as sometimes we refer them and they come to me and just getting their diagnosis uh, approved or acknowledged they'll break down into tears because for the first time they've been validated that this is not all in their head and and I think we need to change that we need to listen to women and we need to believe that and we need to do better as healthcare professionals in learning about what the main hormone effects are in women's physical and emotional health and the reproductive organs are not just there the reproductive hormones are not just there for fertility but actually they have a very important role in our heart brain and bone health and therefore they'll come in presenting with multiple symptoms that don't typically fit in a box. Well, Fatima, I'm wondering, I mean, how do you manage to do things differently? Do you have more time for consultations? Yes. Yeah, so I have a specialist clinic. My initial appointments are a lot longer. They're about 40 minutes for new appointments, up to half an hour for follow-up. And obviously I've trained specially and I've been doing this for a very long time. Um, and it's, it's, it's revolutionary for women when they get the right treatment. Their, their anxiety disappears, their sleep improves, their joint pains go, start exercising, their migraines go, and they're not crazy. So I think it's important to empower women and give them some solutions and what they can do because listening to the last 24 minutes, it seems like you know, we don't want our audience to feel that they're going to go to the doctor and not trust them. I think that's really important. And as we said, 90% of doctors do a great job. Um but I think what women can do, and this is specifically for women, because there are biases, majority of the research and clinical diagnostic criteria are based on a male Caucasian uh, demographic. So I think we need to appreciate that. Something like chest pain is studied in men, not even different ethnic groups. So when a woman goes into emergency, and we know, I've seen it when I did emergency, you know, they literally just come in with feeling dizzy and nausea and we're like, oh, I've got a bit of gastro. Actually, they've had a heart attack. Um, so not only are they discharged early, they're misdiagnosed and not treated and have fatal outcomes. So we are doing better. We're, we are doing more research amongst women and there's lots of historical reasons. That's another talk on its own. But what yes, can indeed. women do? <laughs> What we could be here do, all day. I guess? Yes, yeah, yes. We'll be here all day. So I think the number one understanding is if you've gone to your GP primary care and they're not listening to your symptoms, ask for specialist referral. Um, someone who is specialising in your symptoms or they'll be able to put the pieces of puzzle together and refer you on. Um, in terms of the perimenopausal or any other um, symptoms you're experiencing, track your symptoms. I say track your sleep, your mood, your energy, any other physical or emotional symptoms. Do a three-month diary and track them according to your cycle. If you're a woman, a lot of these things can be related to your menstrual cycle. So now you've got physical documented evidence it's not in your brain and but what happens is when you go to the doctor you get a brain freeze so 
if you have these symptoms for three months, you're like, okay, I've got it here. Then you speak to your friends and family. You'll be surprised when you speak to your friend. Like, oh, I had the same thing. Mm. You should go and see her and her. And this is what happened to me, especially when it comes to perimenopause and menopause. Well, I will just mention too, Dr. Fatima Khan, that Jean Hales for Women's Health, their website, uh, they have a lot, they you know specialise in a lot of women's health issues, but they have a symptom tracker for uh, perimenopausal symptoms, which can be really, really useful if you just want to download that. I do want to look too, I mean, we, we've heard about some fantastic ideas for being your own patient advocate, you know, asking for a specialist referral, tracking your symptoms, asking lots of questions. Mary Darm, it sounds like there's a lot of things going into the potential for misdiagnosis. What perhaps could medical training do to uh, change this? What what kind of changes would you like to see there? Um, I think Fatima just said it um, really well. It's it start learning how to really listen. Oftentimes you think, oh yeah, I've listened all my life. I've, I've known what to do to listen. But listen is a multi-step process. So listening um, involves really listening and believing and then acknowledging and reassuring. So often what happens is people come, women come and they say, oh, I have this really bad period pain. And then a doctor will say, oh yeah, period pain is normal. We all have that. So you immediately sort of feel dismissed. Like if someone comes and comes to you because they have period pain that takes an effort to go to the doctor. It might be debilitating, it might really be changing their quality of life and that is something that really needs to be acknowledged. And so that's something that I really want to be embedded in in sort of medical training and teaching is that people know how to really listen and then reassure based on what patients have said. And plus learning about all the cognitive biases. Yes, that's a very important part of it. I'm going to leave our (laughs) listeners with this text from Jenny. I'm an ED registered nurse. Several times I've had to say to the attending doctor, you can't send that patient home, exclamation mark, exclamation mark, because I've spent more time with them and they're things that must be sorted beforehand. An experienced nurse can make that call and we often do. That's a useful part of the puzzle. Thank you all so much for joining us today. It's just been fascinating looking into the the ins and outs of this issue. Dr. Fatima Khan and Dr. Mary Darm, much appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Pleasure. Dr. Fatima Khan is a medical doctor who runs her own menopause clinic and teaches medical students at the Epworth Hospital in Melbourne. And Dr. Mary Darm is a senior research fellow at the ANU Institute for Communication in Healthcare. You heard earlier too from Maureen Williams, who has Addison's disease and is a patient advocate for that and other reasons now. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.